We're in Malachi chapter 3 today. Uh, we'll be back in Judges next week. So I, I know this is a slight uh, deviation, um, but I felt like it was also appropriate. I haven't preached this sermon in probably two years. When we went through Malachi, I preached it. Um, but before I do, um, it's come to my attention that there are certain persons who have been stealing from the church, from this church. And uh, I realize that the nature of that statement is awkward in and of itself. Perhaps makes it more awkward and uncomfortable are those persons, I think, may even be in the room with us right now, amongst us. And while it may not be maybe the best time, I think it would certainly be the most beneficial time to point those individuals out to you publicly right now. And so that's exactly what I'm going to do right now. That's the illustration. <laughs> if you're listening online, I'm holding up a mirror and I'm showing everyone their own reflection. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God has sent Malachi to preach a, a series of sermons to the people of Judah. They've returned from Babylonian exile a few years earlier. And God's not happy with them. Bottom line. And, and He tells them through Malachi, He says, you guys are robbing me. And the people are a little taken back, just as I'm sure some of you were um, a few moments ago. They're, they're a little taken back. It's like, you're robbing God. And they're like, we're not robbing God. Where do you get off saying that? And then, of course, he, he clarifies for them. Because in the people's minds, they're not robbing. They're giving people. But the issue is that they're going through the motions. The issue is their heart is not in it. And that's revealed throughout this story, by the type of offerings that they're bringing to God. They're supposed to be bringing to God their best. But they aren't. They're, they're bringing God the animals that are sick and blind and, and damaged. They're not bringing their best. You see, Judah's waywardness, as we'll see, was not limited to a few. The whole nation, the whole nation is guilty of this, as the text tells us. And so I'm thinking about this story, and I'm like, this is so, like, man, I, I just really relate to this story, unfortunately, in a bad way, I think, oftentimes. It's so something I would do. I mean, I remember even when I was a little boy, um, my dad's birthday rolls around, and it's like, all right, little Joey, what, 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 do, you, what do we think your dad wants for his birthday? Oh, he wants a Nerf gun. Okay, little Joey, now what did you want? Uh, Walkie-talkies, right? And, but that's just how we think, right? Right? Like we, we have a very hard time. We're just very self-consumed by nature, very selfish, and we're, we're always thinking about really us. And uh, I think that seems to be true um, for the people here in the story who are robbing God, and I think it seems to be true for many people at the church at large today. There's an article that I read from the Verge Network, and it revealed that Christians, I'll throw them in air quotes, if they are or aren't, I don't know, but that Christians give at the same rate as non-Christians, in case you're wondering what that number comes out to be, it's about 2.5% of their income. And then we wonder, like when you hear that, when you hear that, that Christians give at the same rate as non-Christians, 2.5% of their income, why some people say that Christians are no different than anyone else, that Christians are just hypocrites. But I know someone in here will certainly say, that's not fair, Joe. 
because no one can actually know how much I give or don't give. That's a private matter, so it's not a relevant basis for indicting me and, and saying or suggesting that I'm a hypocrite because hypocrisy has to be something that's known. And I would say if that's your thinking, then you probably have way more in common with the people in Judah in this story than you even realize. And so, we look at verse 10. It says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. This verse gets at the heart of the matter. Notice the phrase, the full tithe. <clears throat> you see, it's not, that, it's not that they're bringing nothing. It's not that they're not giving anything. People, well, they are giving. The issue is they're keeping the very best for themselves. And perhaps... Perhaps they're worried. If I give, what happens if I need that later on? I think that's a common way to think about it, guys. You know, there's that fear, I think, in all of us. If I give to God, what happens if I, man, later on, I, I, I need that? And so, at the heart of this story, there certainly is an element of, of trust. But remember, what's happened up to this point? I know I'm dropping you in the middle of the story. God's brought the people from Babylonian captivity. He's brought them out of exile. He's brought them back to Judah. He's brought them home, and everything they have and is belongs to God. Yes, they're giving, which is why they're caught off guard. In verse 8, he says, hey, you're robbing God. They're like, what? We're not robbing God. He says, no, 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 you, you, you are robbing God. No, we give. Yeah, but you give like the damaged like goods. You give God the breadcrumbs. It's not really fair to say that, that you do. Like, you, you give just enough to, like, check the box. It's this almost exercise in religiosity. And so he says in verse 10, don't hold back. Bring what you're supposed to bring, right? Bring the full tithe. And that, that captures the, the issue here. They're bringing some... They're not bringing the best. They're not bringing what they should be bringing. And so he says in verse 10, put me to the test. At which point we say, I'm pretty sure we're not supposed to test God. Jesus told the devil, don't put the Lord your God to the test. And it is wrong to test God with complaining. It's wrong to test God with rebellion. It's wrong to test God with unbelief. That's what's happening here. There's certainly unbelief, right? God does these amazing acts and pulling them from Babylonian captivity and restoring them, right? But they can't trust Him that He'll continue to provide for them. Yes, it's wrong to, to, to test God. To test God with complaining, with rebellion, with unbelief. But it's not wrong to test God, especially when He commands it. It's not wrong to test God with obedience. I think that's important when we try to reconcile the two. Yeah, it's wrong to test God. Not when He commands it, and not with obedience. And, of course, that's the problem. They're not doing what they, they should be doing. They haven't given what they should have given, what they should be giving. They are back from Judah, from years of Babylonian captivity, and yet they've got these major trust issues, which is really very fundamentally the core of the story. And God says here, He says, See if you, when you obey me, just, just see, if when you obey me, I won't still take care of you. If I won't still provide for you. So test me. Test me with your obedience. And see if I won't still provide for you. But there's this fear, right? I think there's a fear that we have. But what if I don't have enough? What if I don't have enough to pay my bills? And so when it comes to giving, most of us do backwards giving. Some of you have never heard of backwards giving. I'll tell you what backwards giving is. This is what backwards giving is. The paycheck comes in or whatever money comes in <coughs> and I look at the numbers and I say, well, this is 
federal, this is state, this is FICA, this is Social Security, this is for rent or mortgage, uh, this is for uh, this loan payment or this loan payment, groceries, Netflix, Hulu, coffee, okay, maybe savings, and then it's, all right, well, what do I have left over? I got, got the, oh, I have a little bit here left over. I guess I can, there we go, get that out when the plate comes around. That's how most people today give. And it's totally backwards. Most of us, it's just whatever little breadcrumbs we have left, we give it to God. And truly, it's what these people are doing in this story. And he's like, I've taken care of you guys up to this point. Remember where you were? Remember where you were. You're not in Babylon captivity because of me. And you can't trust me that I'm not going to provide for you? You can't trust me I'm not going to take care of you? Put me to the test. But we struggle with that. And so the natural question is going to arise if, if they're giving, but they're not giving their best, or they're not giving everything that they should be giving, well then what does that look like? What, what, what do they need to be doing differently? And how does that relate to us in 2019? And someone could say, Joe, why don't you just tell everybody that they need to be giving 10% to God and we can just put this sermon to bed right now. <laughs> um, you know, what's interesting is that in all the passages that speak about the church giving, the, the church giving, there is no reference to a tithe. And when I say no reference, I mean never. Um, but that's what we're told. We're told you give 10%. That's what God wants. You give 10%. Some of you, uh, how many of you and would identify with, with me and say you grew up and you were told by some type of religious figure, mentor, parent, pastor, that's what God expects for you to give 10% of your money to God. Can I just see some hands? So I'd say, yeah, that's like 70%. Okay, me too. Um, and so someone's going to say, so what's the problem with that? Okay? You just identified 70% of us just raised our hands and said that's what we grew up and told that God says to give 10% and that's what you're supposed to do. What's the problem with that? Um, I guess the first problem is, is God doesn't say that. that that'd just be problem one. Uh, I give you more, but why bother, right? The first problem with saying that it's biblical to say God says you're supposed to give 10% of your money to the Lord. Uh, first problem, He doesn't say that like anywhere in the Bible. And I know some of you are like, how, is Joe still running a fever right now? Like, like, like what's going on? Um, say, well, the word tithe means 10%. And that's, that's true. The word tithe does need, mean 10%. But that's a whole jump to go from the word tithe means 10% to God tells us that's what we need to give. So you say, all right, Joe, this is, this is a lot to process. Uh, I'm undoing... Uh, for some of you, 18 years of how you think about giving and money. So I got I to gotta make a little bit of an argument because um, I want you to be like the Bereans in Acts 17. Don't just buy it because I say it. Uh, I, I got to show you, right, in the Bible. So that's what I plan on doing today. And so I think the best place to start is where the word tithe is first mentioned. In Genesis chapter 14, that's where the, the word tithe is first mentioned. I'll paraphrase the story for you for the sake of time today. In the story, Abraham, his name is Abram at the time, but uh, Abraham, he goes, he fights a battle, he kills some guys, he's victorious, he takes the spoils from battle, and then he goes on uh, and he meets the king of Salem. Salem's the ancient name, term for Jerusalem. And the king of Salem, his name is Melchizedek. And it's interesting because Melchizedek is both a king and a priest. And he decides to give an offering when he meets Melchizedek. And he decides to give a tithe. First place anywhere in the Bible this word is mentioned, a tithe. But what's interesting is when he does this, God has not commanded him to do it. He doesn't give a tithe. He doesn't give a tenth of his income, oh, by the way, he only gives a tithe of what he's taken from in battle. And Abraham's going to go on to live 160 years, and at no time in Scripture is it ever recorded, either before or after this incident, that he ever did this again. Only time that Abraham ever gave a tithe, ever, ever did it. And it was just from this specific victory, right? Just from like this one birthday party, that's it. That's all he's doing type of thing. But then you say, well, what about during the time of Moses? Like, they, they, they took a tithe? Break that down for me. 
Well, if we fast forward to after Egypt, to after the 400 years of slavery that the people spent, after the Exodus, they were told that they needed to take a tithe. Yes, the word means 10%. We've established that. And the reason they needed to do this is they needed to give it to the Levites since they were the priest. That's how they were going to be supported. Okay, we're going to take the tithe, Moses says, because the priests, we've got to support them and take care of them. <coughs> and so, <coughs> um, it's usually at this point where someone will say, well, just as Israel took the tithe to support the priest, that's why we take the tithe today to support our pastors, since priests and pastors have similar functions. And that's not untrue. But priests also had civil functions, i.e. they helped run the government. But that's usually the rationale that I hear for why do we give today? Well, they had to take care of the priest, we had to take care of our pastors, abracadabra, that's why we do it. Not a bad answer, just not the whole complete answer. Um, and so the question certainly comes, if the people in the Old Testament during the time of Moses, if they gave to help support the priests and the government, then when we give today, what are we actually giving to? I think that's a good question that we should ask. What are we actually giving to when we give away our money? Um, and that's, that's a legit question. And when you give, money goes to help support the pastor. That's probably universally true in most instances. But Money also goes so that we can meet here. You know, we have to pay to meet here. Money goes to pay liability insurance. So if Kramer misses a step, breaks his leg when he walks off the stage, okay, we, we can pay for that. We have liability insurance. Um, we have to pay to keep the website up and running. I don't know if you know, when we sing songs, all those songs we sing, we have to pay for every song that we sing. I didn't even know that that was a thing. Yeah, we have to pay like license fees. So we pay that in a lump sum every year. Any songs that we sing up here, we're paying to sing legally those songs. It's like copyright stuff. That's a thing. We pay to have the sermons online. So some of you guys listen, some of you are listening right now, like uh, Apple Podcast or SoundCloud. We have to pay to, to keep those online. And people listen all over, all over the world. Um, in fact, I found out that two of the biggest countries are the United States, are Canada and, and South Africa, that people listen to. But there's been other, like, 40 other countries. Um, someone once came and said, Joe, you know what? Like, you're like the Joe Decorine of South Africa. And I was like, oh, thanks. So if you're listening in South Africa today, a huge shout-out to you. Um, I was like, okay, people from Canada and South Africa. Yeah, those are the two biggest global areas that listen to these sermons besides the United States. Uh, but we have to pay for those things. But here's where we often run into <laughs> a problem or a concern because people are often concerned because they haven't been taught about money. It doesn't get talked a lot about in the church um, and usually or rarely biblically, I, I think. And so they don't know these things. Or maybe they've experienced like a problem or an abuse when it comes to money as it relates to the church. Like I, I heard a story like two years ago. This guy comes up to me. He says, Joe, I had an interesting conversation. There was a girl here and she said she wanted to give money, but she just didn't want any of that money to go to you. I was trying not to feel like insulted. Um, and I said, well, what would you tell her? And I said, um, that kind of sounds like a heart issue. And furthermore, you probably need to be at a church in which you're okay with your money going to help support the pastor. And I was like, okay, sounds like you covered it, right? But I also thought, there's a reason she feels that way. Okay, and, and maybe the reason was, you know, maybe he crushed that reason in the things he said to her, but maybe there's another reason. Maybe she's experienced, like, abuses, or maybe she doesn't understand, like, why do we give? Um, and so the thinking is, once again, okay, well, during the time of Moses, they gave to help support the Levites, and so we should give to help support the pastor. But what does the Bible actually say? It, it, once again, you could say, all right, well, there's a comparison, but what does the Bible actually say? Because I don't think it's the best comparison. Well, this is what it says. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14. First Corinthians chapter 9, 14. I'll read it for you. 
It says, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. One more, one more time for point of emphasis. In the same way, Paul says, the Lord commanded, the Lord commanded this, okay? Not Paul, this is the Lord. Those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Why do we support our pastors? 1 Corinthians 9.14. What's another reason? Galatians chapter 6.6. 6. Galatians 6.6, 6, it says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches it. I'll say it again. Let the one who is taught the word. You're sitting in here right now? You're being taught the word right now. And so it says that you are to share all good things with the one who teaches the word. Okay? Some of you might say, well, what about if I listen to like a John Piper sermon online? Can I give to Desiring God? You can give to Desiring God, but I think contextually what he's thinking of right now is the local church, since Desiring God sermons hadn't come out at that point in the first century. But, but, but that's what he's thinking, right? You're sitting here, you're hearing the word. He says, you are to share what good things you have with the one who teaches. And this is done when we collect the offerings. And then there's 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. 1 Timothy 5.18. This is what Paul says on the topic. He says, You shall not muzzle an ox. Actually, he says, For the scriptures say, so he's citing an Old Testament law, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And I read that to someone, and they said, Well, that doesn't mean that you're supposed to pay pastors. I said, Well, well read, the, read the prior verse. Read 1 Corinthians... Excuse me, read 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. It says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of a double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so we ask the question, why do we pay pastors? Well, we just do. That's not a good reason. The Bible's a good reason. And so what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy chapter 5, 17 and 18 is... He is borrowing from a very dominant agricultural society in which farming is huge. And the picture is there's an ox. And the ox is working the field. And the law in Israel, there's no ox is working the field. You can't put a muzzle on it. Okay, that's animal cruelty as far as they're concerned. You cannot do that. When the ox is working the field, it, it has to be allowed to, to lean down and drink water. It has to be able to lean down and eat food. Okay? You can't muzzle it. It's not right. It's not right to the ox. If the ox is working the field, the ox should be able to benefit from its own labor. You should be able to do that. And what Paul says is, if that's true for the ox, how much true is it for a pastor who labors in teaching and preaching? They should be able to enjoy the benefits of their labor. Why do we pay them, right? Because you wouldn't treat an ox that way. Why would you treat a pastor that way? Some of you would treat a pastor the way you would treat an ox, or even worse. But, but you see what I'm saying? That's what Paul's, that's his thinking here. That's how he's processing it. And he says, so much more so, he says, uh, just to make it clear, I'm not actually drawing a, a, a direct comparison. He's worthy of a double honor. He who labors in teaching or preaching. A double honor. In this context, for Paul, he means, pay your pastors. That's, that's why we do this, okay? And I know a lot of you probably know this is in the Bible somewhere, but I, I want you to know the ingredients, right? I want you to know how we bake the cookies. I had a professor all the time, and if anyone quoted a Bible verse, he wanted a reference, and he'd say, if you're going to bake me the cookies, you better give me the recipe. So I guess that meant for him, don't quote a Bible verse unless you're prepared to back it up with the, where it is. But this is why, guys. You wouldn't treat an ox that way. You wouldn't prevent the ox from enjoying the benefits of the field. Why would you do that to a pastor? He's a person, too. His feelings too. Like, why would you do that? And this reference, this double honor, I mean, what Paul is saying here, in this context for Paul, he's saying don't make your pastors have to work a second or third job or say your wives can just work and make up the difference. That's not what he would have wanted. But no doubt someone will say, Paul was a tent maker. I gotcha. Gotcha. He was a tent maker, right? So it's okay if a pastor works a second or third job. It's okay if he's bivocational. Gotcha. Not my first rodeo. I've done this before, guys. When you read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul justifies his tent making by almost saying that he was disobeying Jesus. 
So, so people say, oh yeah, Paul was bivocational. That's just a, a modern day term we throw around. He wasn't bivocational. He was one vocational. He had one mission, and that was to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and make him known throughout the nations. That was it. He did this tent making thing. Really? Not because there's a problem with pastors getting paid. He did the tent making thing because there was a problem with the Corinthian Christians. He was concerned that they might say or accuse him of mooching off of them. It was really due to their spiritual immaturity that, that, he, that he doesn't. That he doesn't, right? That's why he does the tent making thing. Not because that's biblical to, to have this second job, but because, quite frankly, their spiritual maturity is just not there. And he's concerned about them because they're not there yet. And so he foregoes taking what is rightly and should be given to him. But that's not what he wanted pastors to do. He wanted churches to pay their pastors. 1 Corinthians 9, Galatians 6, 6, 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. And so this raises the question, inevitably, if we are to pay our pastors, pay them what? The Bible doesn't tell us that. It doesn't have like a Google, what does the Bible say to pay, you know, Joe, right? There, you can't, there's no pay chart. This is where it gets a little sticky, right? So what do, we, what, do we, what do we pay them? And there's a lot of different points of view on this. So I'll take John Piper's. <laughs> I know that comes as no surprise. Some of you guys, if you were in the small group, it was, it was the one we were doing the lab like two weeks ago. It was the end times one. And I think Julian had asked me if I agreed with what Piper was saying. And I was like, well, and Lexi Fountain was like, don't do it, Joe. Don't go there. And I was like, I'm undecided. So uh, uh, it, it's been known to happen. Not here, though. Um, what do we pay pastors, right? That's the question we, we want to answer. This is what he says. <coughs> we should not try to keep our pastors poor, nor should we try to make them rich. Oh, I thought it was good. I'll say it again. We should not try to keep our pastors poor, nor should we try to make them rich. I was like, yeah, it sounds good. It sounds about right. So what do we pay them? Pay them what they need. What they need to have a, a jet? It seems about, I don't know, every year, every other year, there's some hot, there's, there's some pastor, right, getting into hot water because he's requesting his church give a benevolence fund uh, as part of the $60 million fund he needs to upgrade his jet. It usually is an upgrade, to be fair, to these guys. Okay? It usually is they already have one, they just need an upgrade. So, um, no, you, you, you can't have money to buy yourself a, a new $60, $60 million jet. No, that's, I don't think that's right. I think that's wrong. But it helps explain why I think so many people are so sensitive to money and pastors and their money. And what happens is people get hurt or mad or they experience sometimes firsthand these abuses and then they go to the other extreme. And, and you see it, right? You see one of those, I saw one of those keyboard warriors out there. And they're out there. And, and this guy which is ripping on pastors and how they're all the same, lumping them all into the same category together with, you know, the guys who, you know, whoever it is, the pastor this year, who says he needs a $60 million jet, right? So this, this keyboard warrior's out there, and he's just lumping all pastors that are just greedy, they're just out for money, that's just it. No, we should pay them. Pay them what? Pay them what they need. And obviously this will, this will change depending on where they, where they live, but we are very sensitive to these things because of stories like that. That's what we are. I am too. You're not alone. And so it's scary. It's scary. I remember, I remember when Diana and I bought our house two years ago, and we were legitimately uncomfortable. I don't, maybe scared. We were worried. We were worried about what people would think because of what people did say to us. They didn't, there were some people who did not say nice things to us when we bought our house. Um, you know, they're like, oh, so I see you just got a brand new 2008 Ford Escape. What was wrong with your 99 Ford Ranger? And I was like, well, it didn't have air conditioning or power locks or power windows or cruise control. 
So why did you get rid of it? I, like, I'm not making this up. Like, it, it's some people are under the mindset that they expect their pastors to live in poverty. They go so far to the other extreme. And like, I've had to deal with this. Like, so there's times where I'm like, I, Diana, I don't want to even talk to people. It's like, but our car is 10 years old. I just would rather like not publish any of this information because of like what they might say because people have said like mean things to us. And I think over the years, I think there's probably been at least, I don't know, probably close to a dozen, maybe a dozen people, maybe, maybe half a dozen-ish, somewhere in that spectrum, who they have taken a problem with how much money I make. Now, of course, there's always the other people too, and there's always some people who take a problem with how little money I make, and they're always very encouraging people, because it's, it's really hard. <laughs> like, being a pastor is really hard sometimes. But, but the people who had a problem with how much money I made, their rationale usually is, is, you make more money than me. And that's, that's the problem. And I don't know that you should be making that much money, or you make more money than I'm going to make at my summer job. And at that point, it's, it's hard. I try to be very patient. I usually remind them, well, you know, like, you don't have a degree yet. And, and when you have a degree, or you get a, a master's degree like, like I have, I'm going to guess that you'll be making considerably more money than me. If you just Google, like, like the least lucrative graduate degrees, you'll see, like, a Master's of Divinity at the very bottom of, like, Forbes 500 list. And I just started to tell them. I'm like, listen, you know, I've been pastoring for the last six years. Six years ago, you were 12. So, you know, like, yeah, like, you know, like, there may be a reason that I, I, I'm making more money than you right now. But my guess is, is once you're 32... With two, two degrees, I can almost bet. In fact, that would probably be a good investment opportunity. But I can almost bet that you will be making more money than me when you're 32 years old and you have two degrees. Okay? Okay, but just, just you know, I have to be patient, right? And, that's, and they're like, that's true. They're like, you have been pastoring for six years, and six years ago I was in middle school. So, okay, fair enough. Like, but but that's, that's what happens. And so I usually just tell people, just be patient. You'll eventually make more money than me. I can almost promise you that. But that's one of the reasons I find that I think for a lot of churches, they're just not transparent. And I, frankly, most churches are not transparent. And I know this because I've called churches to ask them, like, what's the spectrum? Can you give me a dollar figure of what you guys pay your pastors? And uh, they won't tell me. Um, like, they, they just won't. They, they, they keep that on lockdown, the financials of the church. And I understand to a certain degree why. Because a lot of the people in their churches are just too spiritually immature to process or understand such things. And I don't think the solution is to hide these things. I don't think the solution is, well, just don't talk about it. I think the solution is, is to disciple people, to help them understand these things. Okay? We got some spiritually immature people, like the Corinthians, right? Okay, well, let's, I don't think the solution is, don't talk about it. I think the solution is, let's help them understand why we do the things that we do. Let's, let's pull them up to the next level spiritually. And of course, that's part of what we're doing right now in the fact that we're engaging in this conversation, that you're hearing this sermon. So, yeah, we should pay our pastors what they need. In Lynchburg, the median income is $39,000 a year, in case you're wondering. And so that's the median, and with this you're going to have benefits as well. In case you're wondering, I don't make what the median is. Um, I make less than that, and I'm not benefited at all. But that's what it is. And so I think, what should a pastor make in Lynchburg? Well, ideally, that's what you would make. I think that's a great starting point. What's the median income? But in Fort Lauderdale and in another city in L.A. or New York, the median income might be a little higher. But I think that's a great starting point in keeping with Pipers. We should not try to keep our pastors poor, nor should we try to make them rich type of mindset. So you say, okay, I got it. I'm convinced. Pay our pastors. They gave, Numbers 18, 21, they gave 10% to help support the priest, so why don't we just leave it there? But the problem is, is when you keep reading, and this is my premise, where I said, what's the problem with saying that God tells us to give 10%, and I said, uh, he doesn't? I, I want to address that. Yeah, they gave 10% to help support the priest, Numbers 18, 21, but when you read Deuteronomy chapter 12, you find that there's a second tithe, Okay? We've now gone from 10%, now we're at 20%. This was a, called the festival tithe. This would be consumed at the festivals every year. It wasn't frivolous. It wasn't a frivolous thing. It was to stimulate devotion to God. It was kind of like a national potluck day. 
And so you'd take this 10%, you'd go to Jerusalem, and you'd eat it with family and friends and the priests and the sanctuary, and it was to promote national unity. So now we're at 20%. But then you read Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 28, and it says, At the end of every three years you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. This would be what would be called the poor tithe. And they do it once every three years, so annualized, that's like 3.3%, right? So now we're at 23%. And oh, by the way, we haven't even taken into consideration the, the temple tax or the fact that every seven years, according to Exodus 23, you had to give the land a Sabbath. So on the seventh year, you couldn't pull in any of the profits from your land. And that, that, that was what it was. Some of you, you guys freak out like on Sundays, Chick-fil-A is closed once a week. Imagine if every seven years it just shut down for the whole year, right? With like... Like, uh, uh, we, would, we would have a problem. There'd be chaos. You can see at this point to say, well, God, God says to give 10%, and that's what the Jews did. Case closed. That's just not the case. They were giving way over 25%. Okay? And, oh, by the way, I haven't even touched on free will giving. Okay? We, we have, they're at 25% already. And we haven't even touched on free will giving which I think has huge application to us in 2019. Numbers, <coughs> Numbers 18.12. I love Numbers 18.12. And in Numbers 18.12, this is what they would do. They would come, and in Numbers 18.12, they would take the very best of the harvest, and then they just go and give it away. Um, the reason I called it backwards giving is because of Numbers 18.12. And they would take the best from their harvest and they'd give it to God and, and they wouldn't know how much they'd have left over. See, today we give very backwards. We're like, all right, uh, FICA, Social Security, state, federal, mortgage, car, whatever, whatever, right? Working, and it's like, how much do I have left over? Okay, I got, I got these little breadcrumbs. I'll let God have that. It's backwards in relation to what they did in Numbers 18.12. They literally were like, I'm going to take the very best right off the top. I don't know how much we're going to have inventoried once we're done with the harvest, but that's okay. That's okay. And I love the Numbers 18-12 principle so much that this is what I do. For me, I give 10% of my income off the gross. Not like after taxes are taken out, like just gross. Minimum. Like that's something for me and Diana that we've like made that decision to do. And I love that principle. I love this. And I, I learned this when I was listening to a John MacArthur sermon once. But it's so beautiful because they don't know how much they're going to have left over. But they're like, doesn't matter. I'm giving God the best, not the breadcrumbs. I'm giving Him the best. I'm just giving Him the best. And this is faith. And this is worship, right? And this is, I think, a willing heart. Remember the difference in Malachi. What's happening here? Malachi comes, he says, listen, you're robbing God. He's not happy. He says, I'm going to judge you because you brought me the blind and the lame and like the damaged. Do you remember that? You brought me your breadcrumbs. You brought me the worst animals. You kept the best for yourself. And as a result, you, you forfeited a, a blessing. That's kind of insulting when you think about it, when you think about the fact that your next breath you'll take is owed to sheer common grace, not to mention what's in your wallet or bank account. And it's just as insulting in 2019 as it, as it is in this story. Everything already belongs to him. Have you forgotten what God has done for you folks? And that's what Malachi is saying. Think about what God, think about where you guys were a hot minute ago. You guys, you guys had no home. You didn't have a home. You had Babylonian exile. Think about where you've been. And I brought you out of that. And you can't trust me to give me your very best? Like that's all jacked up. How insulting it is. So what does he want? Does he want 10% off my gross because that's what Joe Decreon does? No. No, he doesn't. What does he want? He wants a willing heart. Two words sum up this whole sermon. Willing heart. That's what he's after. 
I love the story in Exodus 35 and 36. I'll paraphrase for it. Moses <coughs> goes, tells the congregation, we need to take an offering. How much, Moses? Uh, not important, just whoever has a willing heart, bring it. Okay. So they all come. Everyone whose heart had been stirred to give, and they brought the offering. And they came, both men and women, as many who had a willing heart, the text tells us. That's the idea. That's what God is really after. He's not after your 10% or whatever, right? He's after a willing heart. It's not legal. It's not law. He, was, he wants a willing heart. And the beauty of the story, get this, you're going to love this. You get to Exodus 36, 5, and, and um, they come and they say, Moses, we took the offering. It went really, really well. It went terrific because we took too much. Moses says, oh, you took too much? Okay, well, then you need to let everybody know that they need to restrain their, bring, their offerings. Tell them, tell them not to bring anything more. So, wait, what? Some of you are like, I've never heard that. Like, have you ever been at a church service where they said, listen, need to make an announcement? Uh, when Tanner comes up later to pray over the offering, we're just going to pray and thank him for what he's given us because we're not going to take it today because the last month, you guys gave too much. So no offering today. I've never been at a church service where that happened. It happened here in Exodus 36. Moses says, no offering, tell all the people, proclaim it. God stirred their heart, they brought too much, we don't need to take any more. Like, where does that happen? It happened here in Exodus 36, 5. <laughs> Pretty crazy. At this point, I know someone's going to say, well, that's all Old Testament. Give me some New Testament, Joe. It'd be my pleasure, guys. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 13, 16. Hebrews 13, 16. Do not neglect to do good. And to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Do you want to please God? I hope all of you want to please God. What does he say pleases God? A giving sacrifice. And I know some people are going to say, <laughs> that's, that's really hard. I know, that's why it's called a sacrifice. That's why they use that word sacrifice. It's not easy. Um, some of you guys know my story. You know, when we started Lynchburg City Church, I did not take any financial compensation for the first three years, 37 months to be exact. And uh, that was hard to spend three years in seminary to have a Master's of Divinity if you can imagine, you've got you've gone to grad, you've gone to undergrad four years, you've gone to grad school three years, you got a full time job, and for three years you work that full time job, and you get zero dollars. You get zero retirement, zero health insurance. You get zero for three years. You've been to school for seven, but that's what you have. And for the first year and a half, I didn't give anything to the church. True story. And my rationale was, well, I give my time and my talents. I give my time and my talents, and technically I'm given 100%, because if the church paid me or they don't pay me, I'm saving them a paycheck, whatever. <clears throat> I'm technically given 100% of what I make. And then I got married, and God really used Diana um, to help me with this, um, I think to make me better. And she said, well, I think we should give something. I know you give your time and your talents. I think we should give something. I'm not making any disparaging remarks about what you do. You do a ton. But I have a little money coming in from my job. You have a little bit of money coming in from your part-time army job. What if we took that Numbers 18-12 principle and just we, did, we, we came up with, I don't know, 10% and we just did 10% of the gross of everything else that comes in? It took the idea of giving 110% to an entirely new level. It did. The idea of giving 110% took it to a, another level. But there was no time that I never had gas to put in my car. There was no time that I, I never had food, that I never had my basic needs. I had to get pretty creative. I did during this time. But I say this because I know that this is a real struggle for some of you. And I just want to be real with my own story. I did. Because some people are going to say, well, Joe, I don't give financially. I just give my time and my talents like you used to. The problem with that... and. I want to address it now, because I know if I don't, so it'll, someone will bring it up at small group, and maybe someone still will, but 
It's great if you give time and talents, but that doesn't teach you how to steward your money. That's the issue, okay? It doesn't teach you how to steward your, your money, and, and we're supposed to do that. The Bible has a lot to say about this topic, and it's great if you're given time or talents, and I understand that. And that's why I'm thankful um, God really used Diana in that time to just challenge me to, to really trust God, um, because that was scary, and I had a mortgage to pay, okay? Um, I get it, and I know for some of you, like, it's scary, and it's hard, and so, yeah, people say, well, if you had to put a number on it, I say, I think giving 10% is a great starting point, but for some people, that's not a sacrifice, Um, and when I say I give 10%, that's just an opinion, okay? because I've based my whole argument on that's not biblical to say God says to do that. I think it's a good starting point. But for some people, 10% giving that is not hard. For some people, that's like how much money they spend on toilet paper in a month. And I don't even really know why you would need that much toilet paper. But but how do we give? 2 Corinthians 9.7. I mean, you probably hear this verse just about every single week. 2 Corinthians 9.7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. How much? As he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It's not legal. It's a matter of the heart. What is he after? He's after a willing heart. That's what he's wanting. Some of you, you guys, go into a full-on panic every time, like, Tanner Ebb comes up here to pray in the offering. It's like, oh, you just, like, cringe. You're like, oh, that's the time they're taking the offering, right? And you don't have a willing heart. <clears throat> I remember I was at Fort Knox summer of, ah, I think it was 2016. And I had, I was, I was about to give some money to the church. And I, I like using the online giving because it's like 25 cents no matter how much you give. If you have it linked with your checking account. Um, so I was going to give some money to the church. I still remember this. I'm kind of embarrassed to tell you this, but I'll tell you it anyways. Um, I had typed in the amount of money I wanted to give. It was a significant amount of money. And I went to go hit send, and I was like, I couldn't do it. I was like, what happens if I need that later? Like, that was literally, like, I, so I understand this real feeling. What happens if I need that later on? And I literally couldn't hit send, and I'm thinking 2 Corinthians 9, 7, about not giving reluctantly, and I'm like, I would be giving reluctantly right now. But here's what you don't do. Oh, well, Tanner comes up, prays for the offering. I think I'd be giving reluctantly, so I'm just not going to give. That's not what you do. You do what I did, okay? I'm there in my little dorm room at Fort Knox, and I, and I said, Lord, I do not have a willing heart right now. And if I would be giving, I would be giving reluctantly, and that's not good. And so, God, God I'm going to sit here as long as I have to until you change my heart right now and, and help make me a cheerful giver. Because right now, I'm not. And I had to sit, I just pray and sit there for five minutes. It was so hard for me. And I finally hit the send button, and then, I felt better. Um, but I realized it, it's, it's hard. So what do you do in those moments when you feel like you'd be giving reluctantly? You battle in prayer and you say, God, my heart is ugly. My heart is not willing. My heart is very reluctant to give right now. And I need you to change it. You don't say, oh, don't have a willing heart today. <laughs> I'm off the hook for giving. No, that's not what you do. <coughs> but I know a common pushback that I hear from a lot of people is, Joe, if I had more, I'd give more. I had my friend driving around in an $80,000 car. I hear him say this a lot. If I, if I had more, I'd give more. And that is not true. Um, as Mama Phyllis would say, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Like, just, it's, it is. It's a lie that a lot of Christians buy into. This idea that, well, once this debt's paid off or this debt's paid off, then I'll start giving more. And the reason it's not true is illustrated by this story I stole from John MacArthur. Pastor comes to town to see the farmer. He says, Mr. Farmer, would you mind giving some money to the Lord? And and the farmer said, oh, Pastor, I I wouldn't mind at all, but Pastor, I, I don't have any money. But, Pastor, if I did have some money, if I had $1,000, you can be sure I'd give half to the Lord. Pastor said, well, that would be very generous of you. He said, suppose you had 500 Would you still give half? Oh, Pastor, if I had $500, I'd give half to the Lord. What about 250 
Mm, two fifty. I'd give half the Lord. And he whittles them down. You can see where we're going. And then he says, Mr. Farmer, if you had two pigs, would you give one to the Lord? And the farmer said, Pastor, that's not fair. You know that I have two pigs. In other words, giving is not a matter of what you have. Giving is a matter of the heart. It is uh, 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 the biggest lie in the book to say, if I had more money, I'd give more money. I mean, do any of you guys remember the story with the woman who had the two copper coins? Remember what she says? Um, I only have two copper pennies. If I had more, I'd give more than didn't give anything. Yeah, I mean, neither, right? What does she do? She gives, she gives everything she has away. As Luke 6.10 really captures this, it says, One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. See, here's the thing. If you're not giving sacrificially with what you have right now, you won't give sacrificially when you have more. You won't. If you're not being faithful to God with what He's given you now, you're not going to be faithful to God when, when you have more. Giving's not a matter of what you have or don't have. So many Christians say this all the time. It's like the go-to talking points of why they can't. It's just not true. And you see this illustrated beautifully with the Macedonian Christians, who I love the example because they're like a bunch of broke college students. That's what it reminds me of. But this is what it says. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, it says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. In other words, they didn't have a whole lot, but that didn't stop them from being generous and giving sacrificially. And it came as a huge surprise to Paul. And he explains this in verse 5. And this not as we expected but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Giving is not a matter of what you have or don't have. Giving is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the sacrifice that you desire to give to God as an act of faith, as an act of worship. What is he after? He's after a willing heart. And notice their priorities. This, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. For some of us, it's a matter of priorities. Part of our backwards giving. After we take out everything for this, 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 this. And then it's the last final piece, if we even make it that far. And then we <laughs> blow the breadcrumbs back to the Lord as if he's really impressed by that. I love the story of Zacchaeus. Remember him? The wee little man? We little man, a little song. Maybe she sang the song. I love the song. It was great. I won't sing it for you. <clears throat> um, Zacchaeus meets Jesus, and his world is rocked. That's what happens when people meet Jesus in a saving way. It's awesome. Um, praise Jesus for rocking people's world, um, because he he's lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we should have died. He paid the price we couldn't afford to pay. And so, um, yeah, it's it's. It's going to happen. When you meet Jesus in a saving way, your world is rocked and he changes you. He saves you. He makes you a new creation. But Zacchaeus meets Jesus and he confesses, you know, he hasn't been living that great of a life. He's been ripping people off. And he says, Jesus, anyone I ripped off, I'm going to pay him back 400%. And on top of that, I'm just going to give away half of all that I own. Anyone I ripped off, I'm going to pay him back 400%. And, he, and, and, and on top of that, I'm going to give back half of everything I own. Just give it away. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, listen, uh, Zacchaeus, I know you're new to this whole Christianity thing, but you only have to give 10%. Okay. All right. Like, we're, we're good Southern Baptists here. That, that's all we do. Just 10%. Draw the line there. No, Jesus doesn't tell him that. Like, why would Jesus rob Zacchaeus of the blessing of the worship, of the faith, to give half of everything that he owns. Why would he do that? Of course he doesn't. Zacchaeus obviously purposed in his heart that that's what he wanted to do. And so we come, <coughs> I'm going to put a bow on this and tie this up. We come to Philippians 4.18. Paul, just he received a lot of money 
from the Philippians, and he says, Philippians 4.18, I have received full payment and more, praise God, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. The sacrifice you gave in the offering, it was acceptable and pleasing to God. Do you want to please God? Hopefully everyone, yes, you do. This is what pleases him. A willing sacrifice. And at this point, I've heard Malachi 3.10 totally just abused. If you go back to Malachi 3.10, it says, <coughs> Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I have been at some type of religious thing, in air quotes, I don't know what it was, and I remember the person speaking, I don't want to call him the P word that ends with aster, because I feel like that would just be uh, so unfair, and I've heard him mention Malachi 3.10 and say, listen, you give to God, you just give whatever, you give as much as you possibly can, here's the thing, if you give, he'll pour out all the blessings, you'll get back 10 20 times, 30 times, 40 times what you're giving. So give, and people bring their offerings, right? And you know, the Holy Spirit's obviously moving in that moment, and people are just excited. And uh, the problem with that is, it's not worship. It's not faith. That's an investment. Yeah. And I, and I see Malachi 3.10 just get ripped to pieces. You bring your full tithe. You don't hold back, and God will give you back 10, 20, 30 times. That's not faith. That's not worship. That's just an investment. So remember the offering that Paul received in Philippians 4.18? This fragrant offering, this sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God? Here's what he says in the very next verse in verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. They give this offering. They give this sacrifice. And what does he say? Nothing about getting back 10, 20, 30 times on your money. It would be a really good investment, but that's not what he says. He says, my God will supply every want, nope, every need. He'll supply all your needs. I'm not saying he's going to give you that car. I'm not saying he's going to give you that raise, but you get the idea, right? Every need, every need. What is he after? Bottom line, guys, he's after a willing heart. That's what he wants. I think, you know what? People ask me, I think, I love the Numbers 18-12 principle where they just gave off the top. And for me, like for me, something that God's convicted me, it's like I'm going to give 10% off my gross minimum. I think it's a good place to start. But that's why, and if you come to the membership process, you know like we say we expect you to be a giving member and we put no percentage on that. Why? Because he's after a willing heart, folks. And some of you might say, oh, this is so cool. I can literally be as cheap as I want to. I can give like 1% or 2%. And I would say, if that's what you're thinking, because now I haven't put a number on it, totally just dismiss that. I think I have done so biblically. And you're thinking, I can be as cheap as I possibly can. If that's what you're thinking, I would caution you. I would caution you. Because when I held up the mirror earlier, I was talking specifically about you, if that's your mindset. How can I be as cheap as possible? That's the sort of person that Malachi is indicting in this story. You're robbing God. I'm not robbing God. I'm giving, man. No, you're not. You're just checking the box. That's all. You're keeping the best for yourself. You're giving God the breadcrumbs. And that's messed up. When you think about everything he's done for you, everything he's done for them, and everything he's done for us, so as the team comes, I want to pray for us. <coughs> I want to pray because I can preach, you can listen, but apart from the Holy Spirit stirring your heart, the words you heard today, they don't matter. Like I was in my dorm room there at Fort Knox, struggling to hit the sin button. Why? I just had to pray, God, I need you to work on my heart right now. I need, I need you to work on my heart. I need you to make me a cheerful giver. And so that's our prayer, God, today, that you would make us cheerful givers. Um, that, Lord, make us like the Macedonian Christians. I mean, they gave 
out of their poverty. They didn't have much, but they didn't stop them from being generous. It didn't stop them from trusting you. It's scary. And so I pray, Lord, that you would remind us of who you are. We can trust you because of who you are. That you're a good God. You're a good God who's done the most amazing things for his people. Babylon, taking them out of there. I suppose the most amazing thing culminating at the cross, what you've done for us. So Lord, I pray that the same hearts that that trust you with our eternal security, those same hearts, Lord, could trust you with our money. Oh, we need your help, Jesus. Make us cheerful givers, Lord. Make me a cheerful giver. Protect, Lord. Protect us from fear. Protect us from unbelief. And help us to be more like you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.